One thing is pretty clear. God wants Christians to love and serve one another and our neighbors. That's pretty clear, right? I think we can all agree on that. That God wants us to love and serve one another and to love and serve our neighbors. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? What if we don't feel like loving anybody? What if we don't have any motivation to serve one another or our neighbors? You know, it's not easy to serve others on a good day, much less in the midst of our own problems and our own issues. What do we do when biting and gossiping about others comes much more naturally than loving and serving them? Well, Scripture's answer to these questions is at first glance pretty discouraging, Uh, Scripture says we actually don't have the ability to love and serve our neighbors as we are called to. We actually can't. But we're constantly tempted and we're told uh, that we can muster up enough moral energy to love others well. We just need to try harder and do better. But the fact is, greater moral resolve won't get us there. It won't. Nor will our redoubled effort at sincerity and our good intentions. Nope, we just can't love and serve one another and our neighbors the way that we should. So does anything work? Are we just hopeless here? Does anything help us love our neighbors? Well, yeah. Yeah, Uh, that's what Paul is going to show us tonight. A deeper look into Scripture actually turns discouragement into encouragement. So let's be encouraged tonight. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 14 through 25. Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 through 25. And Blake, if you could turn me up just a little bit, that'd be awesome. Uh, 14 through 25, this is the Apostle Paul. He is writing to the church he planted in Galatia. And uh, here's what he says. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. 
They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these words, these words that cut us so deeply, but that heal us at the same time. What an encouraging word we have here tonight, and we pray that we would be able to, to leave here changed from the inside out by these words and by your Spirit. Thank you for the truth that is here, and thank you for, uh, most of all, for your Son, in whom these words point us. And Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so the good news for us here tonight, this is great news, is that though we can't muster up enough love within ourselves to love our neighbors well, that's not what we're asked to do anyway. It's not what we're asked to do. The love we're supposed to have for our neighbors comes from outside of us, not from inside of us. 1 John 4, 8 says three really important words to understand this. Three really important words. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. God is love. Love then comes from God through the Holy Spirit. So unless God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we will not be able to love others well. At least not in any robust biblical sense, we won't. Serving one another, therefore, becomes all about the Spirit. It's all about the Spirit. Relying upon the Spirit to work in our hearts so that we can be who God calls us to be for each other and for the world. In other words, the call of, of verses 14 and 15 is impossible for us. I'm sorry, but it's true. <laughs> the call of verses 14 is impossible for us without the reality of the Spirit's power to which Paul points to in verses 16 through 25. We must have the Spirit's power. But let me ask you a question. How confident are you in the Spirit's power? How confident are you really? I'm not talking about the Sunday school answer, but just think about it. How confident are you in the Spirit's power? Christians, including myself, are often about as confident in the Spirit as they are in the weather forecast. 
believing both to be, both to be <laughs> too mysterious and unpredictable to merit much confidence. You know, the Spirit just seems like this creepy little mysterious little thing, this force like kind of Star Wars, you know. Uh, just can't really understand the Spirit. It seems kind of vague and confusing, and I just don't want to think about it. And so, yeah, I'm okay with God the Father. I'm okay with Jesus, but this Holy Spirit thing is just a little mysterious to me. Uh, but Paul's purpose in this passage is to remove the mystery. He's trying to help you here. He's trying to help me here to remove this mystery. He wants to convince the Galatians and you and me of the Spirit's inexhaustible power and thus inspire us to rely 100% upon the Spirit in the nitty-gritty of our daily lives. He's trying to give us confidence. And he does so, Paul does so, with four important truths. He gives us four very important truths to convince us of the power of the Holy Spirit. The first one is that the Spirit overcomes the flesh. The Spirit overcomes the flesh. Paul begins here by drawing our attention to the power of the Spirit to overcome our sinful desires of the flesh. Let's look at verses 16 uh, and 17. 16 and 17. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Now, this is an amazing promise, if you didn't know. <laughs> Paul is promising us victory over the flesh in the warfare of daily life. This is pretty awesome. And in fact, the original Greek here is, is much stronger than the English that we read. The, the Greek is very strong. In fact, one commentator uh, that I was reading on this, he said, he said, you could actually read this verse like this. Quote, if you walk by the Spirit, you will in no way, not a chance, absolutely not fulfill the desires of the flesh, exclamation mark. You, if you walk by the Spirit, you will in no way, not a chance, absolutely not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's pretty neat. In our fight against the flesh, Paul's confidence in the Spirit is boundless. It's boundless. Now, this doesn't mean the flesh isn't strong. Our flesh and our, our sinful desires are extremely strong, and verses 17 here implies that. Uh, but the Spirit is just much, much stronger. The Spirit is much, much stronger than the flesh, uh, and the Spirit ensures victory over our sinful desires. So resisting sinful desires, then, is not about willpower. It is not about willpower it is about the spirit's empowerment that's what it's about in fact it's not even about our overcoming the desires of the flesh with the spirit's help it's not even that no rather the spirit wins the victory all in his own he actually doesn't need your help he wins the victory on his own and we simply march under his banner he is our champion we simply enjoy the spoils of his victory. Sad is the Christian who has signed a truce with his sin because he has so little confidence in the Spirit. 
Okay, so point number one, the Spirit overcomes the flesh. Point number two that Paul is trying to show us about the Spirit is that the Spirit reverses the curse of the law. The Spirit reverses the curse of the law. Let's look at verses 18 through 23. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, faction, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Okay, so this is, this is critical to understand here. So both, both those who openly rebel against God, just they just give God the finger, okay, openly sin against and rebel against God, both that group of people and the group of people who try to live extremely moral lives under God's moral law. Both groups of people are damned. See, the, the incredibly immoral and the incredibly moral are both damned. They are both under the curse of the law. But... If you have placed faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ and His finished work, then the Spirit has removed the curse of the law. The Spirit has removed that curse and showered you with blessings in Christ instead. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are not under the law. Now, this is actually the fifth and final use of the phrase under the law in the book of Galatians. It's the last time Paul uses it. And as we've seen before, this phrase is shorthand for under the curse of the law. That's what Paul is saying here. If you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the curse of, of God's moral law. Hence, Paul is referring here to the power of the Spirit to remove us. From the curse of the law. Paul's point is that those who practice the works of the flesh, right, he lists out a ton of them here, right, uh, they are obviously under a curse and will not inherit the kingdom of God. But those who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit are not under a curse, but have been saved by the Spirit and can freely enter God's kingdom. Notice, now this is crazy critical. This is not at all works-based righteousness. This is not at all a works-based issue. The fruits of the Spirit flow naturally. They flow naturally out of a person saved by grace. That's why they're called fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one producing the fruit, not you. Too many Christians will read this passage, this extremely famous passage, about the fruit of the Spirit, and they'll think, okay, all right, well, i got to get to work on my patience. i got to get to working on my self-control. 
Ooh, I got, that's a toughie. All right, I got to get to work. Maybe I'll get me a new accountability partner, you know, a better one. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll uh, jump in at two life groups instead of one. You know, uh, I really, you know, I, I got to work on my joy. I'm just down all the time. I got to work, work, work at my joy. <laughs> uh, no, uh, that's not how this works. Uh, as R.C. Sproul famously said, uh, of those who think this way, he says, they are confusing the fruit with the root. Confusing the fruit with the root. You see, what we actually need to be focusing on is resting and abiding in Christ. Christ is the root of our salvation. And the Spirit is the one who works through the root system, through faith and belief, to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. The Spirit works through faith in Christ to produce the fruit. You are not the one producing it. The Spirit is the one producing it. And so when a Christian produces things like love, joy, patience, kindness, etc., those things are simply evidence. They're evidence that the Spirit is at work. They're evidence that this person has been saved by grace. And they prove that the Christian is no longer under the curse. Uh, you see, these things don't merit the Christian anything. If you're producing love and joy and patience and all that, it doesn't merit you anything. It doesn't give you any brownie points with God. Okay, uh, I mean, again, how could they? They're not your fruit. They're not your fruit. <laughs> they're the Spirit's fruit. Right? They don't, they're not giving you any brownie points. You don't, you're not going up, uh, climbing the ladder of Christianity with all these things. You're not doing it. The Spirit is the one doing it, uh, not you. Uh, and so please don't confuse the fruit for the root. Jesus is the root of our salvation. Uh, and okay, so this, this, this brings us to point number three that Paul is trying to show us about the Spirit, and that is the Spirit fulfills the law. The Spirit fulfills the law. Uh, let's look at verses 22 through 23. Uh, but this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The Spirit is sufficient then, not only to enable us to avoid the curse of the law, but also to empower us to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law. Now, how do we fulfill the law? Through love. Love. That's how we fulfill the law. Love is the sum and substance, substance of the entire biblical law. L-O-V-E. That's it. It is the sum and substance of the entire law. And love is the thing the Spirit creates in the life of the believer and in the believing community. Love is the thing that the Spirit creates. Love is the chief of the Spirit's fruits, which is why it is mentioned first in verse 22. You see, that's not only to give love the place of most importance among um, all of the spiritual fruit, but also to suggest that love is itself a summation of all the other fruit. Love summarizes all the others. Love contains the whole of all that God desires of us. 
all that God desires of us and for us. This is why Paul can say so confidently about the fruit of the Spirit in verse 23 that, quote, against such things there is no law. There is no law. The law is not against the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit, love, is the very thing for which the law itself calls. Love is the very thing for which the law itself calls. Love should be the hallmark of a Christian's life. Love should be the hallmark of our church. We should be known in this city for our great love for one another and for our neighbors. But, once again, let us remember that this is actually impossible. It's impossible for us to love one another well. It's impossible for us to love our neighbor well. You see, within ourselves, we cannot muster up the kind of love and service God is after. The love God desires in us must then come from God himself. And this is the central work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit ignites a fire of love in the Christian heart that has the power to change the world. And in fact, already has in so many ways. In so many ways. The greatest force for good in the history of mankind is the Christian church. It's the Christian church. It is Christians who have been set ablaze by the Spirit. But this begs the question, okay, so how does the Spirit set this fire in our hearts? Well, that brings us to our last point. How does the Spirit set this fire? Here's how. The Spirit glorifies the Son. The Spirit glorifies the Son. Hudson Taylor, many of you probably know who Hudson Taylor is. Uh, he is a, a famous missionary who spent 50 years spreading the gospel throughout China, essentially starting a revival. Uh, and he said that he experienced a radical turning point in his life that spurred him on to become one of the world's most famous and effective missionaries. He said that it was a letter from a friend of his that opened his eyes and set his heart on fire for the gospel and for the people in China. And I'm going to read you part of that letter. I'm going to read you part of that letter from Taylor's friend. And here's what, it, what he said. And I quote, to let my loving Savior work in me his will. My sanctification is what I live for by grace. Abiding, not striving nor struggling. Looking unto Christ. Trusting him for present power. Resting in the love of an almighty Savior. In the joy of a complete salvation. I feel as though the dawning of a glorious day has risen upon me. I hail it with trembling, yet with trust. I seem to have got to the edge only, 
but of a boundless sea. To have sipped only, but of that which fully satisfies. Christ literally seems all to me now. He is the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy. Not a striving to have faith, but a looking off to the faithful one seems all I need. A resting in the Lord entirely for time and for eternity, end quote. Do you see the power here? Do you see what set Hudson Taylor's heart ablaze for missions? It wasn't working, working, working. No, it was resting, resting, resting in the wondrous Savior. It wasn't striving for Christ, but it was abiding in Christ. You see, Hudson realized that Christ would be the one to do all of the work. He would be the one to change the world. And this freed one of the world's greatest missionaries from a burden that he had. See, he had kind of felt like he had all of the work to do. And when his friend showed him that, no, 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 Christ will do the work. Christ has done the work and he will do all of the work needed. Your only job is to rest. Is to rest. And Christ will do the rest. Folks, this ought to be the best news in the world for all of us. It ought to be the best news ever. It ought to be sweet music to our ears. I'm thinking of tired legalists who are convinced that Christianity is all about following the rules. It ought to be good news to grumpy moralists who deep down are really depressed by the fact that despite their best efforts, they cannot live a good Christian life. They don't seem to do it be able to do it very well, if not, uh, perhaps not at all. And it ought to be really good news to insecure hypocrites. Those who know their life, especially their private life, does not match their profession. They don't walk the talk. So they're insecure, hoping no one pulls back the curtain to discover who they really are. This ought to be great news for all of us because, you see, through the gospel, through the gospel, God has done what needs to be done to put us all in good standing with him. Jesus has done the work to put us in right standing with our creator permanently forever it is finished your place in god's kingdom is set forever it has nothing to do 
with you and what you have done and everything to do with Jesus and what he has done. Your place is set. Look at verse 24. Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see what Paul is saying here? He's saying when we embrace Christ Jesus by faith, we are crucified with Him. We are crucified with Him. (laughs) And thus all our sins, our flesh and all of its passions and desires is crucified. It's dead. It's dead. But not only are we put to death with Christ, but we are raised to newness of life in Christ. Verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit. Do you see? Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We died with Christ and we were raised with Christ by the power of the Spirit through faith and faith alone. Faith alone. To walk by the Spirit, you see, it simply means to walk by faith. Faith in the finished work of Jesus. And that's it. That's what walking by the Spirit means. It's faith in Christ and His finished work. You see, when you rest in this wondrous gospel, you will see victory over sin and the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And you won't even have to lift a finger. (laughs) Christ has done and will do all the work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your precious Son. (laughs) Thank you that though we couldn't do any of the work, your Son has done all of the work for us in our place. What a wondrous Jesus you have given us Father thank you for this Savior and thank you for the Spirit, the power of the Spirit that lives in every believer that leads us to your precious Son and empowers us to love each other and to love our neighbors Father we are nothing without you We're nothing without your spirit. And we're nothing without your son. But amazingly, you have given us your very self so that in you, Father, we are everything by grace. What a gift we have to serve a God like you who loves us so, 
and who is with us and in us and beside us at all times, reminding us of your great love and empowering us to show that same great love to one another and to our neighbors. And so we ask you, Father, to help us go tonight in the power of the Spirit. Not trying to do anything under our own power anymore. But just with the Spirit's help, resting. Resting in the gospel. Resting in your great love and forgiveness and mercy. Father, sometimes it's just so hard for us to rest. We want to do, do and do. We want to do it all ourselves. And so we pray, Father, your spirit would bring us back to this passage. And we would remember that our Jesus has done it all. That he has provided everything. And that he will provide everything moving forward. Help us to rest in your sweet son. It's in his name we pray.